This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams And this is the Broncos Bids Are Coming In Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. All right, good one, good one. So uh, I feel like we should have a countdown because what we have found out uh, into round two, not that there can't be more added, but right now there are five bid groups in round two who vying for the Broncos. The ones we know about, of course, Josh Harris, uh, owner of the or part owner of the 76ers and Devils. And of course, uh, we have Mr. Todd Bowley, part owner of the Lakers and Dodgers, and the big boy, Rob Walton, with a net worth of about $70 billion. And this, to me, seems very much like the Mets, where Steve Cohen had sort of his financial wherewithal behind him, where everybody said, if he wants it, it's his. And David Tepper with the Carolina Panthers, if he wants it, it's his. Not that the others don't have significant wherewithal. However, a fortune, a, a Walton family fortune of, of 70 plus billion dollars is an arsenal that will be hard to compete with. If Rob Walton really wants the Denver Broncos, something tells me he will get the Denver Broncos. Yes. Whenever we talk about NFL owners, Scott, we're talking about the cream of the crop in terms of wealth in this country, but it is worth underscoring how different Rob Walton is than <laughs> everyone else that owns an NFL team. You mentioned that $70 billion personal fortune. Uh, that's 11th richest person in the U.S. The 10th richest person in the U.S. is his brother. And the 12th richest person in the U.S. is his sister. So the Walton family is, is, is financially, obviously, a, a dominant force uh, on the American wealth scene. Uh, Rob would be significantly, and I mean this by, by, by almost an order of magnitude, the richest person to own an NFL team if he were to be successful here. The richest NFL owner right now, you mentioned him, David Tepper, at $16 billion. Uh, so again, no, that's like nothing. Again, a, a Rob is at seven. You should have said a paltry sixteen billion dollars. Sure. So, so we've heard that as 
you mentioned there, if he wants it, it's his thrown out with a few different names actually in this process, Scott. But certainly when you're talking about a trust in which the, the, the a trust sale where the estate has a fiduciary duty to sell to the highest bidder, the fact that Rob Walson is by far the richest person involved in this process that we know of right now uh, certainly makes it seem as though if he's willing to go higher than everybody else uh, and he has the wherewithal to do that, that this team would be his. Yeah, also told that there will be a, or likely be, a minority component of each of these bid groups. And as you just said, on this, it has to be high dollar figure. But Roger Goodell and the NFL has made it crystal clear that this is of uh, severe import to them, that there be minority inclusion in the ownership ranks. So smart of any bid group to make sure that it it does represent uh, people of color in the group. Um, we do not know if Robert Smith has submitted a bid and is in round two. He has publicly stated earlier that he was not going to, that doesn't mean he hasn't changed his mind. We do not know. We are working to find out who the other two are, but, uh, there are others who can still jump in. Of course, we always say more bidders means more money. Mm -hmm. Five is a good number. We have an interesting dynamic at play here, Eben, in that not only do we have the sale of the Broncos. But concurrently, we have the sale of Chelsea Football Club. Some similar names. Yeah. And we, we have, of course, people, multiple people looking at both assets. Todd Bowley and Josh Harris are also bidding on Chelsea. So while I do not believe that Allen and Company, which is running the sale for the Broncos Trust or the, the trust of, um, of uh, the Pat Bowlen, Uh, I do not believe they're specifically looking to avoid any conflict here with Chelsea. The timing does work out well. My guess would be that we'll have a new new owner of Chelsea within the next, oh, I don't know, two weeks. So if you're looking at management meetings with these five bid groups in early May, then you're clear of that process. And whether it be Todd Bowley or, or Josh Harris have chosen if they want to pursue both. Now, I don't know if they have the financial wherewithal to bid on both. I was about to ask you that question. How confident are we that that they're not earmarking some of the same money for both these things? And and if and if one were to fall in their lap, that they would remove themselves or not remove themselves from the process for the other. I am very confident that they are earmarking some of the money for each. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be surprised if either Todd Bowley or Josh Harris was successful on Chelsea because we believe that's first, uh, first and comes out as the owner and then also winds up as hmm. a significant bidder on the Broncos as well. I would I would be surprised. Rob Walton, who is not in on Chelsea, if he wanted to to do both, he could cut <laughs> the check. Yeah. Yeah, as, you, as you said, he could cut the check. But I would be surprised if, if they did do both. Of course, Josh also owns a piece of Crystal Palace. We'd have to divest there. But it, it just goes to show, like if you're wondering sort of the scale of the global sports industry and why. I mean, you look at Chelsea and the opportunity here. We have said a million times on this show, Eben, that so many prospective bidders are not interested in turnkey. They want something else. They want media. They want real estate. With Chelsea, you've got a real real estate opportunity, right? You're looking at sinking another billion to two billion in Stamford Bridge, you know, and you can certainly wring a lot more money out of a, a modern new stadium with what you know the the US mindset when it comes to sports marketing the US teams are still a decade plus ahead of the EPL clubs and then of course if you're looking to the NFL well I mean what more do we need to say there all of them 
are cash flow positive and profitable uh, with new media deals and perhaps a new me- stake sale in the media on the way. Um, also revamping sort of how that business may be run in the next 5, 10, 15 years on the media side, setting the stage for even even more, even better. So you, you can see whether they're platform companies or standalones. Um, these folks are already involved in professional sports in the US and are looking to expand their portfolios. That should tell you something. And to put it in perspective, just how unprecedented a time this is right now with Chelsea and the Broncos both on the market, the, the most expensive price ever paid uh, for, for a sports franchise, U.S. or otherwise, was Joe Sai paying $3.3 billion uh, for the Nets and operating rights to the Barclays Center back in 2019. Scott, I think you and I would both feel extremely confident that both of these teams, both Chelsea and the Broncos, are going to sell for more than $3.3 billion, and a pretty good chance they both sell for significantly more than $3.3 billion. We are in the course of the next few weeks or months likely going to have the two most expensive sports team sales uh, the world has ever seen. And again, it is it is amazing to me that that, that with, with three bidders left on Chelsea and potentially just five, maybe a few more left with the Broncos, that, that, that two of them are, are led by the same people. Yeah. I mean, and it brings up the debate then about institutional capital, right? We've seen this mm-hmm. in baseball. We've seen it in basketball. We see it in hockey. There's also the debate happening within the halls of the NFL. Should we welcome institutional capital? The question I would bring up if I were invited to sit in that room, and I have not been, would be, do we need to? And my answer would be no. It's an unequivocal no. Do I think owners are intrigued, or at least a good amount of owners are intrigued by the possibility of opening up some investment to institutional capital? Yes. Do I think there's enough boost in sort of the valuations of these clubs if they do it, 10%, 15%, whatever it may be? No, I do not. And also, especially if you bring in a Rob Walton, but you have all the capital you need sitting around that table for whatever you'd like to do. Like 32 equities on a very small scale, evidence of what the NFL can accomplish if they want to pool their money together and invest. That's just a small, small scale uh, example. They can do larger things as well. You know, you, you can say, let's do things in the collective that we can all benefit from. So I, I would be shocked for two reasons, the, the, the ones I just mentioned. And then secondly, look at the sales right now. And as long as this tracks, I don't see why you would change. You've got a nice trajectory toward the North Star. You had the Buffalo Bills at one point, what was it, 1.4. Then you had the Carolina Panthers at 2 point. Now you're looking at Denver Broncos. I think you and I all believe that this will start with a four. You are roughly doubling in valuation every time one of these teams sells. Now, of course, if another team comes on the market in six months, do I think four <laughs> will go to eight? No, I do not. not. But if it's several years away, much like we've had between or a couple of years, Carolina and and then you know Buffalo before that, does it go for eight? I, I don't know if we double to eight. Let me see what the revenues are at that time. But right now, you're on a really nice trajectory. You don't need the institutional capital. So I'd be very surprised if it happened in the near term. I, I agree with that. Rob Walton seems like definitively a, a, an example of why the NFL might not need to do this. Valuations are getting higher and higher. But, oh, look, we just got the richest person ever to invest in the NFL uh, to, to open up his wallet to buy the Broncos. That seems like a pretty easy claim. I think it might get a little bit more interesting or, or difficult depending on the structure of, of both a, a Bowley bid or a Harris bid or, or who the other two that, that we haven't yet identified, Scott, the, the NFL rules say a controlling owner has to have 
30% of the team. So at about $4 billion, that's roughly $1.5 billion. You can borrow a billion dollars of debt. That still leaves $1.5 billion to get to the four that you might need outside investors for. If it's two or three people, that makes things fairly easy. If one of these groups or the, or the group that ends up getting it is a group that has 15 to 20 LPs, which the NFL does allow, that they're allowed to get up to 25 total investors, then I could see maybe owners thinking about, oh, maybe we do want to change the rules. The, the the preference here at the NFL, you saw it with David Tepper, they want high liquid individuals. They don't want a, a massive bid group that has 15 to 20 different investors, each putting in 100 million or 200 million. Uh, so yeah, I think you're right. If what Rob Walton gets this team, I think it is a very clear indication that the NFL is not yet at the point that a lot of other leagues are at in which they need to make it easier uh, to sell chunks of the teams or, or teams entirely. Um, but I do wonder if, depending on the makeup of a non-Walton group that ends up with this team, if maybe the thinking inside the NFL goes a different direction. And let's not forget that Rob Walton also has some family ties to the NFL. Should he oh, have yeah. any questions, he could pick up the phone and call. What, what's the relation to uh, Mr. Stan Kroenke, the Stan, LA Rams Stan owner? Stan Kroenke married Rob's cousin, Anne. Okay, so there you go. So you, and you Stan call is up. the second richest owner in the NFL right now behind, <laughs> behind Tepper. <laughs> and, and as we know, that he had a very interesting real estate play when he moved from St. Louis to LA. We've seen how that has worked out. And something tells me that in these management meetings, most of the questions from the prospective bidders will not center on the football uh, matters of the Denver Broncos. Because we, pray, we have a pretty good idea how that goes right now. And, you know, we get a glimpse of the Packers and the National. I mean, yeah, you want to see how the local revenue is hard. That makes a little bit of the difference there. I get it. But there is a significant real estate uh, play. <coughs> Excuse me. There's also a significant real estate play around the stadium there. And uh, maybe one that uh, the prospective bidders might be surprised uh, at the possibilities. Uh, there may, some, may be some real opportunity there. So, uh, you know, hey. Hey, Stan, I got a question for you. How did that work for you? And, uh, you know, how do I think it can work for me in Denver? Let's move, Scott, from an established football league to a brand new one. Did you catch any of the USFL's debut weekend uh, over the past few days? See, you, you are showing your naivete there. I, I need more description. Did you catch any of it or did I catch any of it live? Yeah, give me both, actually. Because did I, I did either. <laughs> okay. Did I catch any of it live? No, I did not. Did I watch the reaction around the Twitter world and whatever to it? Yes, I did. Yeah. Did I flick through on my channels, you know, going through my law and orders and everything? Did I then see they were show replaying USFL football and tune in? Yes, I did. So I got a little bit of glimpse. No surprise. And by the way, the interesting part here is that two networks were carrying this, right? You, ha you could watch it on Fox and, and NBC proper. So we should say that they drew, and digitally, they drew about 3 million viewers, which is a great number. You have Isn't that to be a great happy. number? Yeah. I think it's a great number. I think okay. you, need, you need to be very, go compare. I mean, you're comparing it to like NBA playoff game type stuff. You know, you're better than baseball. You're better than hockey. It's not yeah, a so, bad number at all. So I wrote down when the AAF debuted, whatever that was, three years ago. They're opening opening games 3.25 million XFL last year or two years ago 3.3 billion on ABC. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems like all of these new upstart football leagues seem to get around three billion or three three million viewers in their opening weekend. Yeah. Um, the question obviously becomes, what do those ratings look like in six weeks? 
I was going to say two weeks. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> show, like show me, show me. I, I think everybody expects diminution and attrition. Yeah, show me what we are. And we, but again, what does an NHL game do? Two, three, four, five hundred thousand. Like way so, less. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so you have to keep it in in perspective here. What's the end game? And what are we? What are we happy with? And what are we trying to accomplish? It's not really just about football. This is about how do we present football? How do we make this entertaining? And one of the smart things I think the USFL did was to pick one stadium. It's in Birmingham where all the games are played. That reducing your costs, of course, the travel, the movement. And you also have the ability to really technologically deck out that stadium because you don't have to break it down and build it up again. You can go wild with 50, 60, 70, 100, whatever you need to do. It's only a fixed cost one time and then present the game in a manner in which kids will love it and we've never seen before. Yeah, the, the the thing I always look at with these alternative professional football leagues is how different can you present the product and how interesting and innovative is it? Again, I did not get to watch any of it this weekend. I've heard from a few people that the helmet cams were actually really awesome and a really cool uh, a really cool thing to introduce. I've heard the drone footage was also also very good. Um, I'm sure the NFL, Scott, is watching all these things very intently, just like they did the original XFL, because there were some things about the broadcast of the original XFL that very quickly made its way into, into NFL broadcasts as well. Real quick, Scott, before we move on from this, because I wrote it down as well, because I was fascinated by it. So the XFL 2.0... You cheat. You cheat. You write, you write I, all I the write things down. down. You're always. a cheater. I have to try to remember that. X- XFL 2.0, two years ago, drew 3.3 million on ABC opening weekend, which I mentioned. The AAF, right before that, 3.3 uh, million on CBS opening weekend. The XFL 1.0 in 2001. Do you want to guess what the opening weekend did from a from a millions of viewers? I don't because I don't feel like embarrassing myself. 16 right now. million viewers. Obviously, a very different uh, world for television. But there back was then. so much hype. I remember so going much down. hype. Yeah, I remember going after it wherever it broke that day, whatever, and. Um, the WW, I think it might've even been the WWF back then, not WWE, but I remember going down to their facility in Times Square. And I remember the Wall Street analysts didn't love the whole participation and the stock was down, whether it was four or five percent, I don't remember Hmm. the specifics, but stock was down that morning. So my job that day was to sort of go and get a response from Vince McMahon. And like Vince was in character. <laughs> I, mean, I got to tell you, he was in character. He's dropping F-bombs and those beeping, bleeping, bleep analysts, they don't know bleep and bleep them and beep, 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 beep. The whole thing would have just been beep. So I let him have his, you know, his diatribe, right? And he finishes. And I just remember saying, uh, Vince, I don't think I can use any of that now. Like, you know, I'll put you down for a decline to comment unless you, <laughs> you know, unless you'd like to give me something I can use. Right, and he instantly was disarmed and like changed, like this transformation. It was like it was like he was back to being David Banner, right? Not the green guy, you know. And and he was just like, oh well, we heavily disagree with the. Uh, you know? And I was, I was like, thank you, Vince. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, ultimately, it, it didn't it didn't last that long. Um, but. Let's not forget, we had like a stutter step with XFL2 and it's coming back with The Rock and Danny Garcia and Redbird Capital. And I expect we'll see a lot of the same, just innovation, technologically driven different differentiation. We're going to see a lot of the same. Um, I, I'm really not sure. Like, do I really look and say, oh, the football wasn't that great? I don't care if a guy drops the pass. I want to see 
you know, I want to see the camera in the defender's helmet and I want to see the drone. Yeah, I want to see the the the, bi- the biometrics. Uh, I'm interested in all that because that's why I'm tuning in. This this may be a difficult or an impossible question, but just on its face, do you think this can work? Do you think an alternative non-NFL professional football in America can be a viable business model? I get that the XFL 2.0 ran into the pandemic and, and we didn't really get a chance to see exactly what that could be. So many smart, well-capitalized people have tried this, Scott, in the past two or three decades. None of them seem to last. Um, I, I just remain kind of skeptical about whether even with all the best intentions of new tech and new presentation and all a decked out stadium that isn't traveling around lowering costs. I am just skeptical about whether a country that loves, loves football so much, really, if there is an appetite for something beyond college football and the NFL. I would say it needs to go beyond the football. And I did see on Twitter, and this is the difference here. Like, you know, you find, there's these different avenues and you can slice it and dice it and find it in different ways. But I don't even know which coach it was, but it was like he got the Ziggy. Did you see the coach dismissing one of the players from I the team? Did. So this video I did see. Yeah, this is the yeah, only okay. video I saw. Yeah, yeah and, and it brings me, you know, it's sort of the drive to survive. You know, that if you would have asked me, can you captivate Americans on F1? I would have said no. And what I'm seeing right now is it's not all about the racing. Frankly, it's not about the racing for the majority. It's about the human the human nature of it all, the humanity, the, the drama behind the scenes. It's characters. It's real life. It's emotion. You can deliver that also with this football. I, I think if they can find a way to, to really just touch hearts and minds early on and I mean, I, w- I would watch that show again. It's it's Hard Knocks, but it's USFL. I was going to say, you can watch that show. It's Hard Knocks, yeah, right? You I, can I watch know, it in the I, football league with, yeah. the, with the brands that you know. Yeah, but I don't know. For some reason, I find it more compelling because when the guy gets cut with the pizza, you know, <laughs> he's like, he's like I, I still, I wish I could, I need to get more of this because the guy's like, coach, I didn't do anything disrespectful. I just said, like, is this going to be a problem? And I just said, yes. Sorry, it's already been decided. Wait, I don't get that. Wait, what happened? <laughs> you yeah. know, I have more questions and I want to see part two. <laughs> I want to know what happened. So, yeah, I, 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 the NFL to me is going to be about the football and it's going to be about the, the gambling. Uh, the other leagues, I, I think it's going to be more about personality and drama and tech. Really, it's, it's going to be more the, the as we, we always hear, the gamification of it all. What is going to interest my focus group of one? What does he want to see? What he sends me things, you know, when he sees clips throughout the day, like bull, like one guy was did the running of the bull and he ran away from one bull and he was all satisfied with himself and he turned around and he got nailed by the bull coming the other <laughs> I way. I saw this clip, yeah. Okay, so that's what he wants to see. <laughs> that's what, if I can get a whole bunch of that or something cool from whether it's the USFL or the XFL or both, that's going to capture the imagination of him and his friends, and they're going to share it. So, I mean, so we need a bowline team in the uh, in the USFL is what I, is what I'm hearing here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's where we're going to be anyway. Well, let's move on to to another football related and also kind of shif- shifting the audience type related, stuff but here. Not really, yeah. The the Turner the Match Golf Telecast, which have been very popular over the last few years, started with that showdown between Tiger and Phil, and branched out into other celebrities. The latest iteration, Scott, has no professional golfers whatsoever. It just has four, uh, four uh, NFL quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady taking on Patrick Mahomes and, and Josh Allen, the, the old school NFL star quarterback versus the new school 
NFL star quarterback. I'm not surprised here that the that the golfers, the professional golfers, have dropped out of this equation. I think this is a model that you can use for celebrities of all types in 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 a in a game like golf. What are your takeaways from from this latest iteration? Well, we've had a little bit of a retreat with Phil Mickelson from sort of everything in general, right? <laughs> That's so kind, yeah. I think, yeah, I think Phil was kind of perfect for this because he had the personality for it. And, you know, obviously Tiger and Phil had, you know, Tiger had the name. I, I still like to see some golfers in there, but I also would, you know, this will be fun for a while. Again, this is how do you capture people's attention? Yeah, you've got, you've got these huge stars and their non-core competency going out there and, you know, let, let, let's see what happens. Yeah. What, what was it last time? Did like Tom's pants fall down or rip his pants or whatever Ripped it was? Him, and yeah. That, yeah, that became their moment. And, and it's the, there you go again. My focus group of one, he knew about it. So you, you've got, you've, you've got all the makings of success here with the biggest stars in the biggest league in the U.S. So people will sample this. Now, what else can you deliver? And again, we're talking microphones and we're talking cameras and we're, I love the, like, Drones are great for golf. What else are you going to give me that will keep me coming back for more? We started to see a bit of this in the pandemic and certainly moving forward, this idea that premium sports content doesn't have to come from 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 athletes or pros in that specific sport. It's no, obviously, coincidence that Bleacher Report, which is under the, the Turner banner as well, um, it has been doing a lot of this as, as well in terms of bringing together hip-hop stars and putting them in a two-on-two uh, competition, for example, or, or, or putting together internet celebrities and having them play Tracy, horse. You know, Tracy McGrady's coming out with a one-on-one league. So all of those things, I think, are going to continue to be, as you talk about your focus group of one and the things that he likes, uh, yeah, I think that there's interesting, compelling competition involving celebrities, but doesn't have to be the, the thing that they're necessarily or originally famous for or the sport that they play. As long as it's interesting and as long as it's names that people know, I think this is a model that can be exported in a lot of different ways. And golf really lends itself well to that. Do you watch the Food Network, Evan? I do not watch the Food Network. All right. See, it's very popular in our, in our household, you know, even though nobody cooks well. But they've set these things. Like I was watching one last night where these well-known chefs, including a guy, by the way, who played a you know, cup of coffee in the CFL, you know, making a big deal out of his you know, pro, now he's a chef, but they were seated. So it's almost like having, you know, like Bobby Flay would be a number one seed, right? <laughs> so that it wasn't Bobby Flay. Starch but madness. It, yes. Oh, well done, my friend. You don't often get that from me. Well done. But, you know, they had, so it was like number whatever. He was the, the, the old football player was the first number seven seed ever to reach the final four, the semifinals of the guy. But, you know, it's just set up as a competition. It's almost like a sports league. And I sat there and I'm, and I'm, I don't know any of these people, but I want to, and by the way, the best part is, like they spin these giant wheels to figure out like what you have to use, like, like what's random. Like, like you have to use um, like liquid, liquid nitrogen has to be used and a, a specific uh, piece of kitchen equipment has to be used and they're unprepared for it. And these ingredients, you know, and you know, and then the last one is like how much time they have to prepare the dish. It's really fun. Like it, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. It's, it's competition and you see the coming down and I, and I, I'm excited for the championship. Now, now, you know, it's these two women are battling it out in the championship. One was a number one seed who's won before versus I believe the number three who strikes me as a, a real tough competitor. So, you know, that's got me hooked and it's, and it's almost the same thing. It's, it's just the drama. How do you, how do you give me drama? If you can do that with, with these well-known stars, 
even better. A, a little homework assignment for our for our, our listeners, because I, I was hearing you say that it made me think for some reason of, of the time that the Lakers, I think like 10 years ago, were on uh, Family Feud. Yeah. And it, all five of them, Robert Ori was at the end. And Robert Ori gave an all-time all-timer of a wrong answer that I actually can't say on this show uh, because it's a little bit racy and a little inappropriate. But who was the, who was the there, host? Who was uh, the host? I believe, was it Steve Harvey or pre-Steve Harvey? No, it was pre-Steve Harvey. I think it was... Maybe it was Louis. I Louis can't remember Anderson. exactly. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Okay. I, Google it. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Robert Ori, uh, uh, Robert Family Ori Feud. Family Feud. Yeah. It is. A, it's, it's an all timer. All right. Speaking of something, I thought as a Syracuse alum would be an all timer. That was the name, the Carrier Dome. Like I, when I was applying to Syracuse at age whatever, I had no idea Carrier was even a corporation that you know based up there that was air conditioning. And what did I know? It's just it was the Carrier Dome. You heard it on TV, and it was this iconic brand. Well. Uh, you and I broke the story, or I guess uh, if I look at the bylines, I guess you broke the story, <laughs> giving him a little tough time there. Um, but uh, Carrier, uh, no more on the name of the dome, JMA Wireless and Onondaga based, and that is Onondaga County where Syracuse University is based. A wireless um, company will be the new naming rights partner. And man, did we see a lot of reaction to that story when, when it hit. Uh, I can tell you in my little circle of Syracuse alum friends, they were not happy. It, it, it's such an interesting little case study, Scott, because, and you know all this, but back in 1979, when the building was being built, Syracuse needed money to, to get the construction done. And Carrier, a local air conditioning manufacturer, gave $2.75 million, a gift to the university as part of the project to get their name on the stadium. It, it was not a naming rights deal in the way that we think about them now, where there's sponsorships and terms and, and dollars per year. It was just a $2.75 million gift that put Carrier's name on the dome uh, for the lifetime of the building. And, and back then, before naming rights were a big commercial opportunity in sports, particularly in college sports, Syracuse was kind of ahead of the curve. It, it looked like a pretty good deal for the school. Now you flash forward 40 years, th there are schools in the ACC and around the country that are getting millions and millions of dollars per year to put a name like Carrier on, on their arena. C Syracuse has gone 40 years, only gotten $2.75 It's one of the most famous venues in college football and college basketball, in addition to hosting a ton of great concerts, uh, it turned into this huge financial handcuff for the university. So, so as recognizable as Carrier Dome is, and Scott, I even saw people in my mentions over the weekend saying that they had no idea the Carrier was, was a company. They thought it was just a name of, of some family or some guy that had donated uh, years before. Um, 40 years later, it, it, what a great deal for Carrier, I know things got tense between the university and the company towards the end there, but it, paying $2.75 million for 40 years of naming rights to an iconic venue in college football and basketball is a really great deal. And maybe the lesson here, Scott, is don't do uh, deals without term limits ever for anything. Yeah, <laughs> maybe always, always put a be, limit in there at some there point. There always be an out clause for, you know, based on <laughs> exactly. you know, if, if it ever becomes out of whack with the generally accepted standard of, you know, whatever the, the, the time yeah, these perpetuity deals, Some someone's going to be unhappy. Yeah, don't, don't you, do those. You, you absolutely know that. Yeah, so Syracuse, uh, we hear what? It's like ballpark between four or five million dollars a year. That's significant revenue for the university that it could, it could not uh, move forward year after year uh, at a disadvantage that sort of the peer group that it's in in the ACC that they were they were collecting for their naming rights deal. They just had something had to be done. Syracuse is going to get more per year under this deal than they got in the 40 
plus years of having Carrier's name on the dome. I, f- I find that to be fascinating. We should say, Scott, that we, we don't know exactly what the financial arrangement was between Syracuse and, and Carrier to buy out of, of, of this deal. I imagine it was not as simple as, as asking Carrier if they were okay if they signed with somebody else. So I'm sure there was kind of an upfront cost for Syracuse to exit that arrangement. But but no question, the, the, the folks at Syracuse have been thinking about trying to terminate that deal for quite a while now and they finally figured out a way to do it and and they have a new local partner on board to move in pretty quickly one prediction and i have not seen it yet but i i would predict that this will not stop the university from soliciting donations from alums i expect that you're probably right yeah i I expect that envelope to arrive rather soon i will let you know when it does (laughs) He is Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter, Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. And our digital media editor is Cor Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.